So from these different things, from what Estee Lauder projected through her advertising, through what Ralph Lauren, what his influences were and the consistency with which he presented his ideas, with Halston knowing the strength of a logo and what that would do, I learned these lessons by seeing these things actually take form and happen. And, you know, it was fascinating because most people don't think about that stuff, right? So, you know, the fact that I was able to hear from the source what they were doing and many times be with them when they were doing it, you know, that I learned elements of creating a brand which were so important. Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle and welcome back to the show. If you've ever wondered whether you could make a career with your ideas, make a living with your creativity, you're going to love today's conversation. Now, creativity can come in many forms. You can be an entrepreneur, you can be an artist of some sort, you can be an author. Really, there's so many expressions of it, which is why I love this conversation so much. I found it like a masterclass all things branding, storytelling, creativity, what you need to understand about how to create success and why it's important to define it first for yourself. Joining us to have this amazing conversation is Jeffrey Madoff. He is the founder of Madoff Productions, which is based in New York City, and he began his career as a fashion designer and was chosen one of the top 10 designers in the United States and switched careers to film and video production. He has edited and directed award-winning commercials, documentaries, and web content around the world for clients such as Ralph Lauren, Victoria's Secret, Tiffany's, Radio City, Harvard University, and many more. He's also the author of Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas, which we're going to dive into today. And he teaches that and has for many years at the Parsons School of Design in New York City. I loved everything that Jeffrey shares in this interview today. There's just such gold, so many great and important takeaways, and I'm so excited to share it with you. So here we go. Welcome to the show, Jeff. So happy to have you here today. Thank you, Michelle, and thank you for inviting me on. Well, we've covered creativity on the show a couple of times. I love talking to people who are making a career out of creativity or are supporting artists in some way. And I interview so many entrepreneurs on the show, but we've never combined creativity with the business side. And I loved your book, Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. And to me, that's the dream. That to me is the dream. I've later in my life, I, I mentioned before the mics went on, I'll be 50 soon. I'm just starting to embrace, embrace the fact that I am a creative. I have a fiction book that's in process. I 
write music. You know, I have all these sort of secret little projects that sit, but, you know, the idea of making a career of it is to me very exciting. And um, I know that you teach a class at the Parsons School of Design called Creative Creativity, Making a Living with Your Ideas. Did I get that correct? It's actually the same name as the book. It is Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. And um, you started that in 2007. So you teach how many people attend your classes? So there are a core number of students, which is 40, 40 to 44, depending on. There's a lot of bureaucracy when you're teaching at a a college, (laughs) suffice to say. And then there's a number of people that audit the class too. But uh, the point is to keep it intimate enough that there can be conversations, uh, not only between myself and my guests, but the students and the guests and the students and me. That's so great. And, you know, I know that, so you have a bunch of experts in the book, you know, Damon John from Shark Tank and Kathy Ireland and Debbie Millman, who's on the show and different people who you've connected with from your, I assume this was during your, do they come and lecture at the class? They come just like your podcast. They, I interview them. Okay. So and, they, they don't do a lecture. We have a conversation. Oh, and then okay. open it up to questions from the students and guests in the class. Well, and I love what they shared, but I'm actually really interested in your journey because you've made a living with your ideas and so successfully. And so um, I'd love to just dive in and kick this off with having you share you know, how you started out at the age of 22 with a fashion business, managing 110 people to getting into the film industry. I, I'd love for people to understand more about your story. Well, I'm originally from Akron, Ohio. And uh, growing up there, you know, I had the typical jobs that young people do. I had a paper route. That's no longer a typical job. <laughs> Those don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. I guess you could throw laptop computers onto the front step <laughs> of a house but, or tablets or something. But, uh, and you know, mowed lawns and shoveled driveways and set tombstones and did door-to-door sales, all kinds of things like that. And my parents uh, were independent retailers. My mom and dad both worked. Both were entrepreneurs, as is my sister. She owns her own retail business in Mm. South Carolina. So I was always encouraged by my parents to express, you know, wasn't I didn't wasn't raised in a house where children should be seen and not heard at all. There was always animated discussion around the dinner table. Uh, My parents, friends, as I grew up and as I moved away, became my friends and they visit me in New York. It was really great. So I was in a very open environment where communication was not only permitted, it was fostered and encouraged. And in the same way with creativity, because I showed uh, talent for drawing, my parents would bring home paper from the store, you know, craft paper that they wrapped packages in. So I had big sheets that I could draw on and do things on. And, uh, you know, reading was always encouraged. Uh, just expression was always encouraged and in a, in a very, I think, positive way, because a lot of people don't think they're creative and they say, I'm not creative, but, and they've already talked themselves into a corner. And oftentimes it's because of whether it's parents that are highly critical or whether it's uh, 
other kids in school when you're young and, you know, when you put an idea out there, you're taking a risk or teachers who might squelch that. And so I fortunately had a strong enough home base that I wasn't intimidated in terms of doing that. That's so beautiful. You're very fortunate to have that, I think. You're right. And I think, you know, a lot of people can relate to the teacher or you're singing and someone says you can't sing and somebody has the dream and maybe they have a beautiful voice, but one person shut them down and that creativity or that light goes, goes out. So what prompted you to write this book? What, what were you hoping to do when you wrote Creative Careers, taking your class and putting it in a book form? Well, you know, for a number of years, uh, there have been people who have audited the class who were adults as opposed to college students. And many of them quite successful, uh, not to mention my guests. And they've said, wow, you know, you ought to get these ideas out there. You should write a book. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I didn't even really know how to go about that. You know, it's, oh, you ought to write a book. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Then what? Uh, right. So uh, it was funny, uh, just through a confluence of circumstances, I happened to meet somebody uh, who was kind enough to introduce me to her agent. Mm. Uh, she first wanted to come to my class, and she's a writer. Uh, her name is Jody Lipper, a wonderful writer, uh, editor. And uh, Jody said, you know, I'd li- after I told her about my class, she said, well, I'd like to visit the class. And then she said, well, I think you should do a book. I'd like you to meet my agent. And that's how it actually started for something real. So the motivation for doing it was to get ideas out there and to hopefully foster discussion uh, and, you know, get people curious about how they can do these things and uh, inspire them to take a chance because most chances aren't that big a deal. But, you know, I believe don't say no to yourself. You're going to confront enough people in life that tell you no. So don't do it to yourself. Go after what you want to go after. Love it. By the way, it doesn't mean it always works. <laughs> True. And I'd like to delve into that part of it too a little bit more. But um, I, I loved your book and I loved the workbook questions at the end of each chapter to make you think more and go deeper on all of the various things that you covered in it. Um, but since we are talking about creativity, let's just start with a foundation of, I'd love to know what your your definition is of creativity. So my definition of creativity is the compelling need to bring about a change. And that can be in anything. That could be an artistic pursuit. That could be something that in how you teach. Uh, It can be around entrepreneurship. But what a creative person does since they're trying to make something new or fresh in some way is they're trying to bring out bring about some kind of a change. Mm. So I think that's the essence of creativity. Mm. I I love your definition. Well, you know, in your class and through your various years of doing, being a creative and making a living at it and the interviews and the conversations you've had, why do you think you said, you know, not, you know, that there's no, everybody can take the chance, but not not everyone's going to make it. What do you see as why some people are successful like yourself and others aren't able to make a living? 
you know, first of all, there, there's a lot of complex issues that go into it, uh, which is why, and I want to make it clear to your listeners, that my book is not a prescriptive book. Yeah, It's not, if you do these five things, you will be successful. Mm -hmm. uh, because there are no recipes for success. There are best practices, you know, show up, be prepared, yeah. uh, be curious, listen. Those are all really important things. But for every person that does those things and is successful, there's a thousand other people that kind of did the same thing, but weren't. Mm -hmm. So what separates them? Right. I don't really know, you okay, know, but fair. I, but I, but I can make, I can certainly make some, uh, you know, assumptions based on the experiences that I've had. Okay. And, and I think one of those things is, you know, it's interesting because I've been promoting my book and doing podcasts and so on. And, and people say, well, what's your action plan? What was your master plan? Well, I didn't have an action plan. I didn't have a master plan. I didn't have any of those things. And, you know, then I get asked questions. Well, have you failed? And I said, well, we have to define what failure is. Uh, you know, uh, you may have an idea of what failure is. I may have a different idea. So let's define what failure is. Uh, but the, the main point being that overriding everything is perseverance. Yeah. You don't have to be the best, but you have to survive, you know? Mm -hmm. And so survival in business, there's a huge part of it. Assume that you have a good product or service that people are interested in. And that's, yeah. that's another thing we should go into, which is proof of concept because that's essential. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, you know, the perseverance, because you are going to hit obstacles. Yep. That's, that's a given. Yeah. You know, sure. yeah, unless you're delusional, yeah. you know, you're going to hit obstacles. And some of those obstacles are going to be really tough to overcome. And so perseverance is a huge part of being successful. And, and by the way, you also have to define what being successful is, uh, you might define Elon Musk as being tremendously successful. Yeah. Uh, and he's, you know, not many people are going to start an electric car company, nor before that start PayPal and have become phenomenally wealthy before you embarked on that. And so everybody's circumstances are different. So you can be inspired maybe by someone like him, yeah. but there's also, and I think this is a cultural note. You don't have to become a billionaire or multimillionaire to be successful. How do you define success? What is success for you? And I think that's a big question that a lot of people don't really ask themselves and don't go deep into, because if you can, if you can do whatever it is you love doing, yeah. And you can provide for your family if you have a family and you can live the kind of life you want to live and you're fulfilled through that work you're doing. Sounds pretty successful to me. Yeah, I completely agree. And actually, the entrepreneurs I bring on the show, I always ask them their definition of success. And this show is about creating success on your terms just like what you write in the book. So I was loving when I was reading a lot of what you discuss here and, you know, the, having curiosity and uh, the invitation that your book creates in terms of questioning and thinking and, you know, it lays out what you need. But like you said, everyone's experience is going to be different. 
Um, but the perseverance, obviously, I love that. I, I think that that is deeply important. Um, did you want to talk a little bit about the proof of concept? Because we're going to get sure. into brand in a moment anyway, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on what, can you define what that is so people understand? Sure. So <clears throat> my first adult career was when I started a clothing company and I designed clothes. And, you know, I knew nothing about that business. Can I, I ask why did you do it? Why did you start a clothing company at that age? What made you so do that? I was 21. Yeah. Uh, I had just graduated. From, I graduated a bit early from college. Mm -hmm. And I got a phone call from a dear friend of mine that I grew up with. As a matter of fact, his mother and my mother grew up together and he and I are still friends. Oh, I love that. And, and uh, he had graduated from college a year before me. And he's, his name's Kenny Meerman. And Kenny said to me, listen, I saved up some money. Can you think of a gig that would earn more than bank interest? Well, I was working in this little boutique. I did the buying for it. And uh, I knew what sold. I could always draw. So I said, I'll start a clothing company. And he said, okay. And in about a week I had, we can't remember what the real amount was, but around $2,500, which was more money than I had ever had at one time. <laughs> and uh, I cut apart a shirt that I really liked the fit of. I went fabric shopping, which I had never done before in my life. <laughs> and I was so ignorant that when I saw fabric on the bolt, I thought that that was wholesale, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> it hadn't been made into anything yet. Right. So I, you know, but I was ignorant, not stupid. And the difference is ignorant, you can learn, stupid's forever. And uh, so I <laughs> was able to learn. And when I uh, got some of the sewers who did alterations for the store, uh, I got them to sew some of my designs and put them in the store and they sold out right away. Wow. So we made more, put it in a store, sold out right away. So I designed more pieces. So I'd have a line to present, mm. uh, put them in a little suitcase, strapped it on the back of my motorcycle and drove from Madison, which I went to college at the university of Wisconsin in yeah. Madison uh, and drove to Chicago and I went to 18 boutiques and I think I sold 14 of them and all of a sudden had like $55,000 worth of orders. Oh my goodness. Okay. Uh, so what proof of concept is, is that I had an idea, I created a product and it was a product that people wanted. And how did I know they wanted it? Right. They bought it. They bought so it. So, yeah, it doesn't make any difference if your parents say, oh, that's beautiful, you know, <laughs> or, you know, friends of yours say that. Are people actually willing to pay for it? Mm -hmm. And so proof of concept is really that simple. Are people willing to pay for the product or the service that you're selling? Yeah. Well, let me ask you, because sometimes, you know, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, um, you know, through coaching and whatever. Um, people can be a couple years into their business and they're, they're making some traction, but not enough. Like you right away had proof of concept. If, is there a certain time frame that you think that if you're not really seeing results, that it's time to 
re-engineer, to, to look at what you're doing? I mean, what's the, is there a certain threshold? Because as an entrepreneur, I know that, you know, you go through so many, you go through highest highs, the lowest lows, every day is different, but at the end of the day, you do need to, it needs to be a business. So I, I'd love your right. thoughts on that. Well, you know, I think that if what you are doing isn't selling, you have to figure out why isn't it? Yeah. You know, so there, and there's lots of reasons. Maybe you're not marketing it well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe you're not getting it in front of the right eyeballs. Uh, Maybe it's crappy, (laughs) you know, and it's not ever going to make it because (laughs) you didn't put enough thought into it. And there's not a market for it, which again is why proof of concept is so important. Mm -hmm. My business took off really quickly because there was a confluence of a lot of circumstances. Uh, The fashion market was beginning to change. And prior to the time that I entered into the business, there was what you wore when you were a kid and let's say kid is up through college. And then what you wore as an adult but there wasn't anything in between. And so I was interviewed by Women's Wear Daily, which was the Bible, daily Bible of the fashion industry. And when they interviewed me, they said, uh, well, who are you designing for? And I said, I'm designing for me and my contemporaries, the contemporary market. Mm. And I'm not the only one that used that phrase, but I was quoted as saying that. Because there was a whole thing happening in fashion. This is this is just after the Beatles, after Carnaby Street, after the 60s explosion. I started my business in like 1971 or so. Okay. And so there was the the ground was fertile for that kind of creative expression. Mm. So, you know, and I and because I had worked in this boutique and came to New York doing buying for it. I also got a sense of the marketplace. So you really have to educate yourself. You can't just do something and hope it works. You know, there's a lot of thought that needs to go into it before you do. Mm -hmm. And that thought hopefully leads you to a concept that is desirable. And then you have to figure out how to make it the most desirable to see if you can sell it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's maybe desirable enough to, keep going or you have enough money that saved up that you can survive for a while. But at a certain point, you have to make the decision, which is, is it that I'm not doing this right? That I miscalculated the market? That maybe it's just not that good an idea for a general consumer market? Uh, Or, you know, you have to really, really face some things Mm. because you also don't want to be delusional and eat up a lot of time and money when it's not going to go anyplace. But you don't know that until you put out that kind of an effort. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I'm wondering, you were successful, though, not just with your first venture, but then with your second venture, um, with um, doing the, um, with your Madoff productions with your film mm-hmm. company. So I'm just wondering, were there mentors? Were, did you innately figure things out? What did you have on your side, if you will, that helped you kind of navigate? Because I do think some people are innately good at 
understanding. And, and from reading the book, I got the sense that you have, I don't know, I feel like maybe intuition is a big part of, and you can speak to this. I don't know. This is just from reading your book that I'm feeling this, but uh, there's a particular uh, story you tell uh, where you're doing, um, uh, Ralph Lauren is getting an award. Um, you can, and you, you, you suggest to him that he show baby pictures and bring more of his younger life into it. And he was like, nope, no. And you're like, no, 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 let me show you something. And you had a, was it your own, you did your 50th anniversary album for your parents and it made him feel something. And you were able to let him see something that initially he had resistance to. So I'm going a little bit deeper there, but um, I'm just curious because I, you know, for you specifically, did you feel it was like an innate thing or what advice can you give? Like, do you need those mentors, the coaches to, to kind of find your way? Cause you did it at such a young age. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. I've been thinking about that a lot because I've, I've acted sort of as a, uh, somewhere between a coach and a nag to a couple of friends of mine, you know, <laughs> to help them do things because they were afraid to do it, afraid of taking the risk. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that what one of the things that's on my side is, again, having to do with my upbringing, my parents were entrepreneurs. Yeah. So my sister's an entrepreneur. So part of that is, you know, I'm unemployable. So I had to start my own businesses, right? <laughs> uh, and I have, fortunately, an insatiable curiosity about a whole lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And that curiosity manifests in asking questions, doing research, reading books, meeting people, all of that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I didn't have any mentors uh, I had mentors of behavior, hmm. but I didn't have mentors of here's how you do this. You what know, does that uh, mean, mentors of behavior? Just observation? Observation and how you treat people. Because I think that the, the most important currency in one's life is relationships mm -hmm. and the integrity and the longevity and the sustaining of those relationships. Yeah, And I think that that's the most important. And I think in many ways, that's really the most important part of life mm -hmm. are those relationships. Uh, of course, everybody's got to make a living and I'm not saying anything like that, but I didn't have, you know, and I wish I would have, but I didn't have any mentors who taught me filmmaking, but yeah. I was able to teach myself. And one good thing about doing that is I was able to do things that were different because it's also when you have to teach yourself, you're bringing a very personal stamp to it rather than doing something that has been filtered through other people. Now, by the way, my influences and love of film and watching movies and all that, yeah. those were my inspirations. Sure. But I didn't have anybody showing me, here's what to do. Yeah. But on shoots, uh, you know, when I hired a cinematographer because I liked their work, I would start looking at how they did what they did. So I taught myself how to shoot. I taught myself how to edit. I taught myself how to light. And, you know, when you're a director, that's just another form of relationship. Mm. And you're not going to do what I ask you to do, especially if you're an established talent. If I don't seem to know what I'm doing and I'm not making sense in what I'm asking you to do. Uh, and so 
that relationship is a relationship of trust. In the play that I'm doing, much more so. But trust is also a huge factor in that. So those skills aren't skills of how to do something specifically, but they're the skills around how you relate and deal with people that can help move you forward because that can move you forward when people enjoy working with you. Yeah. Yeah. Being able to connect and have that curiosity and the integrity that you talked about and uh, the building of the relationship. Well, it's, it's interesting though. So how did you actually end up working with Ralph Lauren? And I'm wondering if your experience with creating your own clothes somehow helped you connect and relate to him in some way too. I just, I'm just curious because it's not mentioned in the book. It just said you had a 35 year relationship. So how did you start working with him and what kind of work were you doing? So it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, when I was still designing, yeah, I haven't told this story before, but when I was still designing, uh, you know, I started working with this factory in Georgia yeah. to make uh, pants. And we got back our sample with the spec sheet and how much yardage it would take and all that stuff. And I saw the projected price and God, this is high. And then I saw that was for Ralph Lauren. So they sent me because our look was similar. They sent by mistake. We had chosen the same fabric and the look was similar. They sent me by mistake, his sample and the cost out rather than mine. Now at that time, I'd heard his name, but I didn't really know who he was, but there was very much a shared aesthetic sensibility. Absolutely. So it's interesting that you you mentioned that. What happened was that uh, videotaping fashion shows was a very new thing back then. And uh, my first client was Halston, who was Mm. probably the most prominent American designer at that time. Yeah. And the head of PR, public relations for Ralph Lauren, uh, knew that, that, that I did Halston's show, and she thought that Ralph ought to start videoing his shows. So uh, she called me up to meet with him. And so I went in to meet with Ralph, and we hit it off. We got along well. And, you know, we worked together for about 36 years. I never had a contract. Because what I did was try to always make myself important in terms of doing good work, offering up new ideas. And uh, same thing with Victoria's Secret. I worked with for like 26 years. It's about making yourself desirable through the work that you do. uh, So you don't give them any reason to go anywhere else. And fortunately, if you're, I was very fortunate that my relationship was with Ralph himself. So I worked with him for all these years because I also made him comfortable. We worked well together. And that was, that was really nice. And again, relationships. And that's what's so important and why it's such an important currency in business. Mm. Let's talk about branding and storytelling as that fits into your you know, your ability to sell, because if you don't have a compelling story, you're not able to connect with, through your product, your service, um, you're not going to sell. You're not going to sell. You actually wrote in the book that uh, through your 30, you mentioned 36 in the book, and it said 
35, so it's now another year, probably, I don't know when this came out, a 35-year relationship with Ralph Lauren, you've learned invaluable lessons on how to build a global brand. But you also just know from doing what you do, what, what can you share with us about how you think about, you know, really anchoring that brand so it resonates with people? So, first of all, when you mentioned my relationship with Ralph Lauren and, and what I said, I learned. I also learned from Halston. I also learned from Estee Lauder. And, and the reason I'm pointing that out is I didn't learn this from a book. Exactly. I learned it from people who were doing it Yeah. and who were phenomenally successful in what they do. Yeah. So what is it that I saw that they did? Like Estee Lauder, I actually met Estee. You know, and it was funny because she was this formidable woman to the people that worked there and all that. To me, she looked like one of my grandmother's friends. I love it. I love it. You know, (laughs) so it was incredible because at one point, uh, (laughs) it was was so weird because everybody was so tense because Estee was there. And uh, she said, well, you are a very charming young man. And I said, well, you are a very attractive woman. (laughs) And she came over and gave me a kiss on the cheek. And uh, so it was so funny because everybody around from the company, you know, you didn't talk when Estee talked. You didn't get too close to Estee. I mean, it's all this stuff Mm -hmm. that that many of these people are are packed in cotton so that nobody gets close to them. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, she seemed like one of my grandmother's friends yeah. and I was very comfortable with her. And as a result, she was comfortable with me. That's interesting. But, you know, I heard her story from her about how she started mixing these skin creams in her basement to sell at Hadassah meetings when she would go there. And, you know, everybody thinks of this glamorous blue blood. She wasn't that at all, you know, but that was the image that she had created. Wow. Not unlike Ralph Lauren, where yeah. Ralph Lauren when you think of his brand, it's status and good taste. But Ralph was the was a child of immigrant parents. They didn't have money when he was growing up. Mm. And he looked at the movies and Hollywood as kind of his muse. Grace Kelly, Audrey Hepburn, Cary Grant, uh, Gary Cooper. You know, that's what he looked at as his muses. And this was his fantasy world that he would become enveloped in when he went to the movies. It inspired his designs, because he'd see these cool-looking, really well-tailored clothes on Cary Grant, but he couldn't find a tie of that width, or he couldn't find a suit that was cut that way. And so he went after those things, you know, to find them. Uh, And he ended up creating them himself. He started off just making ties. Uh, Halston wanted to create, when he created his fragrance, he wanted to create a bottle that was so distinctive that he would not put his name on it, that the bottle itself would be the logo. Uh And he worked with Elsa Peretti, the uh, renowned jewelry designer, Mm -hmm. to design those bottles. And the the fragrance licensee said, you can't do that. You can't put, you can't not have a name on the bottle. And he said, why not? Nobody has a bottle that looks anything like it. They will know what it is. So from these different things, from what Estee Lauder projected through her advertising, through what Ralph Lauren, what his influences were and the consistency with which he presented his ideas, 
with Halston knowing the strength of a logo and what that would do. I learned these lessons by seeing these things actually take form and happen. And, you know, it was fascinating because most people don't think about that stuff, right? So, you know, the fact that I was able to hear from the source what they were doing and many times be with them when they were doing it, you know, that I learned elements of creating a brand, Mm. which were so important. And then I went further into it to see, so what was the template for that? Where did that idea come from? Because I'm always interested in the antecedents, what came before, Mm -hmm. what came before, what came before. And so when I looked at, you know, I I start off my branding lecture and I've lectured at Wharton, at uh, Steinhardt, at NYU, of course, at Parsons, at South by Southwest, a number of different places Mm. on branding and creating a brand. And so I do this gesture Let's see if we can do it on Zoom and you can see it. But, okay, what logo is this? Nike. So I'll just, since this will be audio, he did kind of a swoosh. I'd say Nike. And you're right. Yeah. And so uh, the thing about that that's that's interesting is, you know, I could be in front of 3,500 people and Nike. And so, you know, I thought, so wow, that symbol. Yeah. Like the polo pony for yeah. Ralph Lauren, yeah. you know, that symbol is so well known and what it stands for is so well known. So a brand has to mean something. Yeah. It has to have a recognizable symbol. It has to have people that believe in the values that that brand presents. And so when I think about that, I would think further back into, wow, that's like religion. Mm. It's like a crucifix, but it's a swoosh. And there is a belief system that's around that brand, a story that is around that brand. And so it becomes really fascinating to me because a brand is a story that's well told. Yeah. And what all brands are competing for uh, is they're competing for the most precious commodity out there, our attention. So, you know, looking back to religion, now go to the current times. And what are people that promote the brand that work for the company called brand evangelists? Yeah, brand ambassadors, brand evangelists, right? Evangelists. Oh, evangelists, not ambassadors. You're right. They're both, but evangelists, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's fascinating. Never thought about that. So, you know, that's why I like to keep digging deeper and asking the questions that take me deeper into it because that increases my understanding of, oh, so that's how you do that. You know, that the consistency is so important. The consistency of the story is so important. So if you're driving around the United States and you see the golden arches, what do you see? McDonald's. Yeah, that's right. So no matter where you are, you see those golden arches. You also know what that stands for. You know, good, fast food that's not expensive. Now, by the way, I never eat McDonald's, <laughs> but, uh, the, but the point being that they have created a global brand around that very simple story. And, uh, and it's, there's that recognizable symbol, just like when you go to church, you know, it's the same thing that it stands for something and that what it stands for is consistent, no matter where you encounter that brand. So, People, uh, especially entrepreneurs who are doing startups or people who want to be coaches or whatever, they talk about their personal brand. Yeah. 
And, you know, people say to me, so, you know, how do you create a personal brand? And so I, I, I think that the notion of a personal brand uh, is, is kind of stupid. Yeah. Because what a personal brand is, it's not a brand, it's your reputation. Yeah. What do people think of you? Yeah. Do they believe you? What do you stand for? You know, are you fair-minded? Do you do, do you do what you say you're going to do? Uh, you are you do you tend to be hyperbolic or do you tend to be more accurate and honest about what it is that you're presenting? And so, although there's been a lot of conflating of a product brand and a personal brand, I think it really comes down to uh, personal brand being one's reputation. But I look at a brand just to, to sort of sum it up as a story that's well told, that is consistently told, and that stands for something that is agreed upon with all of those who encounter the brand. And there's often a symbol that accompanies it, be it the golden arches, be it a swoosh, uh, whatever it is, that is that consistent identifier, no matter where you see it. I love this so much. I find it so fascinating. I, I'm going to ask if we can go just a little bit deeper on it. So the brands that you mentioned, I'm thinking of Nike and, and Ralph Lauren <clears throat> in particular, you know, growing up, those were coveted. You know, everyone wanted to wear the polo shirt. Everyone wanted the Nike sneakers. And, you know, not all of us could afford, our parents could afford that stuff, but we all wanted it. Uh, at one point, there was something called Jabro jeans. They had their label on the outside uh, front. It was very recognizable. So you knew somebody was wearing it or somebody was looking for the knockoffs of the Jabro jeans. It became sort of the symbol thing. How does that happen though? Like how, I mean, you talked about the consistency and the symbol and the storytelling, and I get that, but but still, there's a part of me that goes, you know, there's probably a lot of people out there trying to tell that story and make it compelling and be consistent and have a cool symbol, but it doesn't anchor to, you know, to somebody's need to, to wear that or to have that. I'm just curious your thoughts. Like, why? Why those brands? Why those that don't make it? Yeah, or? both, I guess. You know, how does somebody actually create that global brand versus, I mean, maybe if that, you know, that's maybe that's a tougher question. I don't know, but yeah. How, how do you at least, maybe you're not going to be a global brand, but how do you become recognizable in that way? I mean, I know you did talk about those key things, but still there's that curiosity around how did they become? So something that every kid is begging their parent to have. So there's, there's two things. One more key factor yeah. that, that I didn't mention is trust. Every time somebody buys something, that's an act of trust. Mm -hmm. So if you as a company or the service that you provide violates that trust, which means that you didn't deliver to the expectation of that buyer, that can destroy a brand. Yeah, so you saw that with Uber, okay? Uber highly dominated the private car you know, call your own car via your phone yep, business. Yeah. Uh, and their image was of this hip, cool company that did that. The reality that surfaced is that it is a company that was abusive to its employees, conned its customers, yeah. and it 
that cost them billions in the evaluation of the company. And they've been doing reputation repair for the last three years. WeWork is another example. So you've got another company that built up this, this huge evaluation that is now plummeted uh, because it violated the trust of the consumers. Mm. Uh, so trust is another big part of longevity in a, in a brand. Getting it out there, like you're saying, and making it that desired product, that's marketing yeah. and advertising. Yeah. So, you know, and marketing is done in many ways. But, you know, the marketing could be that there happens to be, uh, this is a simple example, but there's, there's a celebrity that loves what you're doing and they got photographed wearing something you did, you know, wearing that jacket you designed, hits on social media and catches on fire. So uh, marketing has to be really smart to build demand and advertising has to be really smart to fuel demand also. Marketing is probably more important than advertising because getting the marketing out there, first of all, is not as expensive, and uh, but it has to be an ongoing effort to create awareness, first of all, and marketing helps seed the ground for the sale, as does advertising. The primary purpose of advertising isn't just awareness, it's also creating desire. And so you may have the best product in its category in the world, but if nobody knows about it and you don't have people out there spreading the word somehow, it's not going to gain traction. I'm just curious your take on influencers and this whole social media thing. It's very weird to me on many levels just because of being a Gen Xer. And when I did marketing, I mean, there was none of this. Um, you talked about the celebrity could be wearing something. I mean, there's something very powerful happening on there. I, I have very mixed emotions about social. It's not a place that I enjoy being on very much, but it seems maybe necessary. I'd love just your thoughts on that. So, well, first of all, Celebrities have always been used to sell products. Yeah. That's not new. Yeah. You know, so whether it was uh, a star athlete on a Wheaties box. True. Yeah. You know, there have always been the celebrity endorsers of a product. Mm -hmm. So it's just, there's a lot more of it, you know, now. Everybody wants to be that. <laughs> well, and there's, you know, we're barraged with it. Yeah. You know, when you, when, when you were growing up uh, and you came home from school, you didn't open up your laptop or look at your tablet and get barraged with stuff all the time. You know, nowadays, everything is competing for your attention. You know, so there are those celebrities that break through. But what has happened, for instance, that for a minute, bloggers were huge in the fashion world. And all of a sudden, those bloggers who had big followings were get, being seated in the front row along with major publications because they thought that those bloggers had a dedicated audience and a big audience. So first of all, people started learning the difference between having millions of followers and having dedicated followers. The difference is that you can have millions of followers and sell nothing. Yes. And you can have dedicated followers who were influenced by the person who set up that site or that particular blogger or celebrity and 
people buy as a result of seeing them with it because they have credibility. And what was also found out was that a lot of those bloggers were getting their pictures taken, you know, with the product or whatever, but they were being paid to do that. So they were shilling for the product, not being open that that's in fact what they were doing. Mm. And the blogger as influencer greatly diminished as a result. So you've got to be honest with your market because you will be found out. And when you were found out, you were going back to what I said, lose trust. So your personal brand, or in that case, reputation, is they're not authentic. They're going for the money. And this is all a pose. You know, so then you've got people who do have credibility and do have following. Uh, and that following is reinforced because maybe they have a regular TV show. Maybe they have a regular podcast. Yeah. You know, uh, Joe Rogan has become very hugely popular for yes. podcasts, yeah. right? Yeah. So he now influences people and that influence and his celebrity is reinforced however often he does a podcast. So it's in all different worlds, whether it's movie stars or podcasters or whatever, uh, you know, who is going to have the dedicated following that can help a business get their leg up. And just like with magazines, which have fallen off tremendously because of digital delivery and newspapers, well, now the delivery system becomes, uh, you know, the, the criteria is getting eyeballs. And that's always been the criteria, and it still is. But now if you're a Kardashian, you know you know that you've got those millions of eyeballs on you. So yeah. you sell it just like magazines sold their circulation. Yeah. It's all the, I love looking at the antecedents because it's all the same thing. The objective is get all the eyeballs on it, get people paying attention to it. And uh, you can make money selling the eyeballs. And, you know, when we talk in my class about social media and I said, it's not social media, it's corporate media. And they are selling your eyeballs to advertisers. And the more those algorithms are, are more and more refined and sophisticated, Facebook can target you more and more. And they're targeting you to sell you more stuff. And so it's not free. If the product, Facebook, right. is uh, free to the consumer, yeah. then actually they're selling you. That's right. And they're selling you to advertisers. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, this is, sorry, I've, I, I'm mindful of the time and I, I find you fascinating and I love these kinds of conversations. Um, I'm going to ask you, uh, we started at the beginning about creating what success means to you and you ask in the book. Um, I would love to ask you, how do you define success? I have two definitions. One definition is with business. And the definition of uh, how I would consider myself a success in business or what do I consider success to be in business is the ability to say no without catastrophic financial circumstances. So that's what success is for me in business. No, I don't want to do that. I don't want to work with you. <laughs> you know, yes. the ability to say no and, and it doesn't hurt. Uh, in my personal life, uh, success is the strength, longevity, and integrity of the relationships I have with my family and friends. 
That's beautiful. In your book, it made me smile the way the book ended. I really, it was, it was very satisfying. And I said, what a great story to have ended the book with versus having started with it. It was, I thought that was great. Um, I'm going to ask if we could wrap up with you sharing that story of this trek you took in search of meaning <laughs> and purpose um, and leave us with the lesson or lessons that you uh, learned from seeking out this guru. I'll leave it at that and let you tell the story. So seeking out this guru who uh, allegedly had the secret to long life and prosperity, uh, you know, there is a necessitated an expensive and long journey to get to that person. Not unlike, by the way, the Wizard of Oz, if you will. Mm. Uh, because when you pull back the curtain and reveal that person, uh, it's oftentimes a, a, a projection of your own thoughts uh, and your own fears. And the payoff, I hate to give it because I hope everybody listening will buy my book. I know it's true. I should have. <laughs> maybe I just, I didn't know, spoil, I didn't mean to do a spoiler here, but I just <laughs> loved it so much. Maybe, yeah, go ahead. So I, I think the main takeaway is you have to do the work. And there is nobody that can, that has any kind of a secret that you can somehow make a fortune. And we've all seen these things, you know, you can make, make $10,000 a week in passive income and all that kind of stuff. Well, those are all con jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, those aren't real. You have to do the work. Yeah. And the only way that you're going to succeed is working your ass off to do it. And it's, you're going to, as we said at the beginning, meet inevitable obstacles. And if you put your energy into the work and going towards what you're doing, as opposed to trying to unlock secrets to get to that through some kind of a uh, person <laughs> who can unlock the door to success, well, that's not going to happen. That's not realistic. So be prepared to do the work. Most people give up because it's a lot harder than they anticipated or because of the mythologies out there, they somehow think that it should have been easier and they've done it all wrong and that they just can't figure it out. And that's, again, why perseverance is such a big thing. When I was looking into doing a podcast, you know, because I've been asked to do one. Yeah. Uh, can I ask how many how many episodes do you have? Have this, you got? 116 have aired. So it's been over two years now. Right. And, and so I was told that most people give up after the first six months. They yeah, don't get to 10 episodes. Track. I've heard 10 to 20 episodes and they stop. Right. Yeah. Perseverance. Yeah. You keep going. It doesn't happen fast. Everything that you're after, the high, high likelihood is it's going to take you a lot longer than you hoped it would. And you just have to be realistic about what it actually takes. Yeah. But you can do it. But go in with your eyes and mind open and yeah. ask questions. Ask questions. Whatever chance you get that can unlock something that you want to get to, ask questions. You know, I, I ask my students, so you guys reluctant to ask questions. Why are you reluctant to ask questions? And the main answer that comes back is, well, I don't know, I'm afraid it's a stupid question. And I said, actually, the only stupid question is the one that you don't ask that then screws you up later because you didn't ask the question. It's so true. It's so true. 
Um, I've loved this conversation. I thought it was very rich and there's so many beautiful takeaways and tactical takeaways. Um, I do think that people should read your book, Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas, if they want to make a living with their creative, uh, with their ideas, um, which I think many of us who, uh, the women who are listening to the show absolutely do. Where can people learn about more about you and your book? Where can I direct them, Jeff? Oh, so this is, I love saying this. I'm going to try to put on my FM radio voice. Go okay. for it. Do it. Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas <laughs> is available at all fine booksellers. <laughs> uh, so you, you can go to uh, Amazon or Barnes and Noble or ebooks.com or whatever. And I would also ask your listeners that if you like the book, uh, please post a review because that helps referrals when you shop at Amazon. And if you don't like the book, keep it to yourself. <laughs> Is there a website <laughs> that you want me to send anyone to or just? Yeah, there's uh, there's a, a, a couple. There is www.creativecareer.com where you'll see clips of the interviews, nice. stuff about the book and that sort of thing. Uh, there's also on Instagram at a creative career where you'll see short quotes and other insights from the class. Uh, and there is LinkedIn where I also post things and you can follow me on LinkedIn and it's B Jeffrey Madoff. Wonderful. I'll link it all in the show notes anyway, to make it easy for people to find. Thank you so oh, much. Please. And, and by the way, they can see, they can go to madoffproductions.com and see the video work and the stuff for Ralph Lauren and Victoria's oh, Secret fun. and that sort of thing. Fantastic. I will for sure link all of that in the show notes. Thank this you. has been such a pleasure. Thank you well, so for much. Me for me too. Today. Oh, thank you. you know, thank you for your questions. I mean, your questions were really thoughtful and you were really prepared and, you know, and that's another part of being successful is being ready and being present. And you were very much that. And so thank you very much. I appreciate it. Wow. That means a lot to me. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast right now on your phone and to leave a rating and review if you have yet to do so on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you are interested in continuing the conversation about the topic that was discussed in any episode, you can leave a comment over at thegoodlifecoach.com for that particular episode. You can also access all of the show notes. And while you're there, I'd love to invite you to be a part of the community where you will get an email from me once a week with more inspiration and tips to own your life and love yourself. Thanks as always for tuning in. And I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now.